This is an RNZ podcast. More people in Queenstown and Wanaka are struggling to find affordable housing, even though rents are starting to come down. The waiting list at the local Community Housing Trust, a public housing provider, began to reduce a year ago, but has grown again during the COVID-19 pandemic. That was RNZ News at 8 last Wednesday morning when RNZ's Otago Southland reporter Timothy Brown reported that even in one of the most prosperous parts of the country, the crisis of affordable housing has been amplified by the disruption caused by COVID-19. But Timothy Brown went on to mention there had been some success in building new homes there. The Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust has secured 50 high-density apartments in Frankton and construction is underway on six homes in Wanaka. Dozens more sections are planned in Lake Hayes and Arrowtown, which Julie Scott says will bring some relief to the trust's waiting list. And the work of the Queenstown Lakes Community Housing Trust would have been fairly familiar to readers of the online news service that's dedicated to news about Queenstown, Wanaka and the Southern Lakes region, called Crux, and Crux is also governed by a trust, the Southern Media Community Trust, which was formed for the purpose of getting Crux going. And it's headed by veteran journalist Peter Newport, who's worked for the BBC in the UK, TV News in Australia, and here at TV3, RNZ and others. Now, when it launched online in mid-2018, Peter Newport told MediaWatch he set up Crux because the Southern Lakes region risked becoming a digital backwater starved of good journalism, and mainstream news organisations, RNZ included, had pulled journalists out of the region to cut their costs, and key backers of the project, including donors such as entrepreneur Dick Hubbard, shared that concern. A year later, Crux was getting over 60,000 page views a month and local issues such as Queenstown Airport, a new hospital and local governance and water quality were all getting frequent coverage on the site and sometimes Crux was getting pushback from those local outfits that didn't really enjoy the added scrutiny. And some of Crux's stories about tourism industry problems and a maternity care crisis in the region were also picked up by the national news media. Crux also received public funding from New Zealand On Air for three video series about life in the area, and housing, which is now blowing up as a major social and political issue nationwide, is the subject of House Talk, the most in-depth video series yet by Crux, co-produced with RNZ. This is a ten-part series where we talk to the people who are involved in the development of the buildings we live, work and play in here in Aotearoa, New Zealand. I don't give a toss about anybody's risk. The only way to achieve your outcome with the RMA is to be a bully. Now overseas, financial trusts have backed some significant news media companies, but Crux is a first for New Zealand media. But back when it launched in 2018, Peter Newport also told MediaWatch he didn't want Crux to depend on just a handful of deep-pocketed donors in the long term. Our model, incidentally, is that we think we eventually will be owned by the community that will become so valuable, um, floated, if you like, to the community. Crux and its backers are now pressing ahead with that plan for community ownership, turning its audience into stakeholders, and that the outlet itself should become a kind of social enterprise. And the idea was pitched to a meeting of potential supporters in Queenstown this past week. In a couple of years, the goal is to have hundreds or even thousands of local people as stakeholders by investing small sums in Crux themselves. Well, another interested party in all this is Nathan Hethington, a US-born writer and publisher who now lives in Albert Town near Wanaka. 
He also publishes a quarterly magazine for and about the Southern Mountains called 1964, which was named after the year that Mount Aspiring National Park was founded. In the past, he worked for a newspaper publisher called Black Press, based in Canada, which also publishes local daily papers in the western United States as well. And he still sits on that company's board and advises publishers on digital transition in New Zealand and elsewhere. So does he think community ownership could really work for crux? I absolutely think it would work. I think we come from Canada where the co-op model, we call it a co-op model. It's a little bit more mainstream where we have large retail stores there where when you shop there, you own the retail store. This, to me, fits it perfectly. I subscribe, and by subscribing, I own the news. So I own a share in the business that provides my community news. But most people just do it as a customer, right? And they're either paying for it in terms of paying a cover price for something or subscribing, or they're paying with their time to watch something that's filled with advertising. This is that times two. So you're subscribing because you want to, and side benefit, you now own the company that you just want to consume from. So to me, I think it's a no-brainer, and there's people that are doing it very successfully. I mean, so it was. I was looking at transitioning a lot of newspapers in Canada, um, a couple, well, over 100, into a similar type model. And one of the ideas was, uh, if if we are have a high-quality product, and we do have a lot of eyeballs, advertisers are going to be interested. Is it just that simple? Does it make a difference? This is old-fashioned newspapers and print, right? This is a digital. I uh, think the key is enterprise? don't marry yourself to anything. Everything's always changing. Vinyl records are back. You know, I mean, we, nobody knows what the future is. I think when we get stuck in, I think the job is to, to get high-quality editorial out. And Peter's, he's, I'm not an editor. <laughs> I'm not a writer, but I know who they are. Sure. Um, and I think that's the key. You let them do their job, and then you have other people who do their job, which is to make sure the thing functions properly, make sure everybody gets paid. And that's it. And I think it would run very smoothly. But as a publisher, what about the notion of having suddenly shareholders that might want to say, that might want to change the direction of the company, if you think you know what's good for it, that's a bit of a nightmare, isn't I it? I think you can do it with the proper governance. Now, I'm not an expert in that, but I think you have to have an editorial board, and they control things, and people can vote people to get on the board. The owners are not directly interacting with the reporters, though. Say, so in the current kind of difficult and complicated climate to be in any business, what difference does it make if you're not trying to make a profit to return to a shareholder? I think it's huge. It lowers the bar. If I, I mean, you're saying we have to break even. If we're a non-profit, then there's other advantages to that as well. So, yeah, I think it's very feasible. I think everybody is starting to realize how much we need real investigative journalism, not just here but around the world in local communities. Local communities need high-quality local journalism to function properly. Otherwise, corruption creeps in. And tell us a little bit about your experience in Canada and what brought you here. Um, so in Canada, I started a originally... I'm, a, I'm an engineer, actually. I'm an environmental engineer, but I got involved in some technology. I started a company like Gumtree in Canada, which was part of newspapers, and then I ran newspapers on Vancouver Island and British Columbia and still sit on the board of that company and work with newspapers in Hawaii and Washington State and Alberta and other places. And they're um, all still going? Yep, and then I'm still involved. I'm still, um, but I get frustrated with that. Uh, their inability to change, they get stuck in their ways. They're not doing their job. And I would argue that's why they're out of bit. They're going out of business. In what way? They're boring the readers or they're not covering the news? They're, well? I mean, they're press release rags. You can control the whole storyline of a newspaper by filling with press releases, which is dangerous in the wrong hands. So, I mean, you publish a publication here, a magazine. Do yep. you think um, people, you think they're ready to make that jump and actually become stakeholders, shareholders in their own news outlet for their own area? I think so, but I think it's simpler than that. 
I don't think it even gets to that point. I think it's, hey, this is 50, 100 bucks a year to subscribe to this organization that keeps democracy flowing in my town. Oh, and by the way, that means I own it. So it's just like a benefit at the end. But the step one is you have to have the value. And so if you have the product and everybody recognizes the value, it's old school. You've got to have the value. Now, if you have a press release rag, no, I'm not going to pay you a dime for it. But if you're helping my community stay healthy, yeah, I'll subscribe. That was Nathan Hetherington, a former newspaper executive in Canada who's now living in Albert Town near Wanaka. And while he sounds keen to back community ownership of the Queenstown-based news outlet Crux, and he reckons the readers in the region will be willing to do the same if community readership becomes a reality, how could it actually be done? Peter Newport is the editor and founder of Crux. Well, here in Queenstown, we've seen a mass exodus of media. It's a very expensive place to keep a journalist. So we've seen a lot of media outlets closing newspapers and taking journalists out of here. And yet, at the same time, this community's changing. You know, we're seeing massive change in Queenstown, Wanaka and Cromwell. So the gap that we tried to fill was really around helping the community understand these forces that were changing And I think the gap that we're meeting is that we're part of that change. We're not simply observing it from a distance. Well, you mentioned those people from all around the world um, that were here. Some of them you've been approaching, effectively putting your proposition to them. So stage one of this project of yours is to get a few core backers. And some of them, I'm guessing, will be not just local people, but these people from overseas who have chosen this as a place to live. Wouldn't it be simpler just to have a few core, deep-pocketed, backers to uh, back a digital news outlet like this that they themselves would be interested in rather than try and recruit uh, backers and owners from the whole community? It would be much easier. But we've seen all over the world wealthy people, especially in the States, billionaires in the States, they love buying media outlets. And they don't love buying media outlets just for the fun of it or as a hobby. Those media outlets are very powerful. Even Crux in its own small way is powerful. And it just seems to me, even though it might be easier, fundamentally wrong to have a media outlet that's owned by a small number of people. I really do feel strongly that if local media is going to survive and thrive, we have to be the voice of the people. And we have to therefore be owned by all the people. Mm, but this, there's fish hooks in this, isn't there? Because one of the parts of the proposal is a community editorial advisory board. So if you've got stakeholders who are members of the community, I mean, potentially hundreds of people, this is your goal, do you really want to have a community-driven editorial board or advisory board sitting over you determining the direction? You'd want the, you'd want to have the power uh, and the autonomy to be able to take it in the direction that you believe it should go? It's a safety valve. And where I think I and the journalists working for Crux do need some future guidance is on tone. Because in a small town, there's no positive thing about being outraged and angry every day. You've got to have some good news. You've also got to see the merit in business, that business can be good. So we need to be in a position to reward and recognise good business and good progress. And sometimes, I think, as journalists, we do tend to get a little bit on the, the problem side of the balance sheet instead of the good news. But, but, but if you had a, an editorial advisory board saying, Peter... Lately, you've been a bit negative. You know, these, these, the tone of your stories, you would hate that, wouldn't you? I don't know. I think it's important. Uh, if, if the community wants us to be more of a mix between good and bad, then I have to listen to the community. The idea that we only have one client, and that is the community, 
is a little bit difficult to argue with, and that's what we've achieved so far. The way we do it at the moment without a big advisory board is we do lots of reader surveys. So the idea of having an editorial advisory board is not only to keep the tone right, but to make sure that we continue to accurately reflect the views of the community. So the really hard part, finance-wise, of what you're doing here is trying to expand like this and attract uh, revenue, but, but without advertising. And you've said... Um, the, uh, especially in the communities of Queenstown, Wanaka and Cromwell, uh, it compromises journalistic integrity and independence. You can't bite the hand that feeds you. But what is it specific to this location and those places that you mentioned there by name that's any different to any other media outlet that takes advertising for, from local businesses for a local readership? A national media outlet can and does juggle many hundreds of different advertisers. If we're in a situation where locally we might only have five outfits that are the major sources of money for advertising, if one is the council, if one is the airport, and the other three are major tourism companies, I think it makes it very hard to report independently on those five entities if they're all paying you money. It's hard to be a tough journalist in a tough town and still have the money coming in from advertisers. Uh, if your money's coming in from tourism companies, in simple language, it's very hard to be tough on the same tourism companies. But what you're trying to do here is something that really hasn't been done before. And how confident are you really that within a couple of years you could have, I mean, hundreds as your goal, isn't it? Hundreds of people who live in this area actually paying uh, to be members and owners of, of this new outlet? I'm very confident because, of course, it replaces... Uh, the need for high subscription rates. It replaces the need for big paywalls. I think paywalls are going to be really tricky for local journalism. And one of the things that we've discovered is that people always ask the fundamental question, what's in it for me? And that's why this is going to be successful, because what's in it for a resident is the ability to come to us as journalists and have us make a difference. Because everybody has something to complain about. So everybody has a desire to see things fixed. If we can provide that service as journalists, then absolutely we can persuade people to become shareholders. But we're not that naive that we think people are just going to write us a cheque. And one of the really clever ideas that's come out is that by partnering with business, which is part of our growth, we can have a voucher scheme. So instead of spending valuable dollars on paying people cash dividends... We can pay dividends through supermarket vouchers and petrol vouchers and restaurant vouchers. It's not sort of some wide-eyed utopian idea of a media that's um, happily trucking along without rewarding its shareholders. Well, one of the goals also in your your pitch to this stage one of people to back the the project that far was that you want to show, demonstrate to government that this is a robust outlet that will be sustainable because, as you've mentioned, New Zealand on Air funds some of your video projects and right now all this is in play. The government's talking about now $25 million a year for three years as a contestable fund for journalism that could be at-risk journalism, even regional journalism. Are you eyeing that up and thinking, aha, this is an opportunity? Uh, Yes, absolutely. We have our eyes on some of that money. But also, quite rightly, they don't like risking taxpayer money on something that's not well run, that may not be totally professional, that may not be funded well enough to last 10 years and rather than wait for government to say we'll give you money if you meet these conditions 
Our approach is to anticipate what those likely conditions are. So good governance, good local funding, good editorial standards. These are all things that I think government will be ticking boxes with before they give money to regional journalism. But this is long-term stuff that you're talking about here. It's a long-term picture. But you want to get started on this right now. So the documentation that's gone out talks about you know, trying to hire people before the summer holidays, for example, to get this stuff in place. But doesn't it all fall down a bit if the high-net individuals that you've been pitching the idea to don't come on board in that initial stage providing the sort of $300,000 that you want to propel this into the stage two and, and then get it into the community ownership? Well, the good news is that we're actually quite well advanced into this program. It's not really so much the beginning as the closing stages. When we've been talking to the community about funding for two and a half years, and that conversation has taken different paths. Should we be a trust? Should we be a trading trust? Should we be a charitable trust that just educates journalists with a limited liability company attached? So already we've come very close, if not actually past our minimum goal. And there are journalists out there who are sick of writing media releases and calling it news. It's never easy raising money. But we've had two and a half years to prove ourselves. I think we've achieved a level of success that we have good reason to be proud of. That was Peter Newport, the founder and editor of the news outlet Crux, dedicated to news and issues from the Southern Lakes region. And you can find out more about its proposed transition to community ownership at the news site itself, crux.org.nz. But is news media really suited to being a social enterprise? Well, advising Crux on the project is Christchurch-based lawyer Stephen Moe from the law firm Perry Field, who wrote the book on this, Social Enterprise in New Zealand. There's many, many social enterprises. In fact, there's probably thousands of them throughout the country. And these are often purpose-driven entrepreneurs who want to do business while also being sustainable. There's multiple examples from textile um, manufacturers or clothing manufacturers, like Little Yellowbird, um, through to Whale Watch, which is also a, a, a purpose-driven enterprise. In Kaikoura? In Kaikoura, yeah, exactly. We see it in other outlets as well, like the spin-off, putting money in to support what's being done. Yeah, become, become a member, effectively. Yep, and, and I think to answer your question, I always like to come back to the simplicity. Keep it simple. Companies are well understood. You have shareholders, you have directors, you have dividends that flow back to shareholders. That can all be used within a social enterprise context or a purpose-driven company context. Add in some mission and some purpose. So there's actually um, a vision set for that company. You actually articulate what's our mission, what's our purpose, how will we report on what we say we're going to do. That makes it also more complicated, doesn't it? Particularly when you consider what kind of business the news media is. Uh, If you've got a lot of, say, community stakeholders, as Crux wants to have, uh, and they want to have a say, doesn't that make it really complicated? Because, you know, news media, not really a democracy when it comes down to it. Well, I like to take the word you use of complicated and, and actually flip it on its head. Because all of a sudden, you have ambassadors out there who actually care about what they've invested in. But if and, you've got to make tough they... decisions, though, or, I mean, what if you have to change direction, sell part of the business to stay afloat, or lay off workers because we're not getting enough to pay them, don't these decisions get much more complicated if you have a spread out range of owners? 
can get more complicated in the sense of more consultation. But again, I would flip that on its head and say this is a really positive thing because we're actually involving more stakeholders within decisions that get made. So if there are media businesses out there that think, well, we're in this business, we serve the public good by reporting, are there a range of structures that they could choose from? So maybe not the same as Crux, but for example, um, uh, B Corp status, this is a new thing, right? But businesses can have a kind of assessment and certification that you know, recognises that they have a social purpose. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, B Corp would be one example to show that you were on the right track in terms of looking at your environmental footprint, how you treat employees, and if you meet certain points. Well, what is... would be the benefit, though, if you were got that B Corp registration? What, what, how would it help you? So that people can know that you went through the rigorous process to actually become a B Corp, to qualify as a benefit corporation, because it is quite a rigorous standard that you go through. Can the news media be regarded as charities, I mean, legally? What you're really talking about there is could you have a charitable entity set up in this sort of a sector? And charity law has its origins back in 1601. Basically, there's four heads of charity. It's more than 400 years old. Yeah, it's quite old. <laughs> okay. um, so there's four heads of charity, advancing education, reduction of poverty, advancing religion, and purposes beneficial to the community. So I haven't seen a news media organization try to qualify, but if you were able to uh, meet those criteria, then charity services as the regulator would then have to look at. But the key, there's two key benefits of registering as a charity. The first is credibility within the community, and second is the tax status because um, you're not going to be paying taxes, and also you can give tax-deductible receipts to your donors. That was lawyer Stephen Moe from the Christchurch-based law firm Parry Field, and he's an expert in the legal structures for social enterprises.